Good morning again. We're in a special series of learning to love God's Word, and we're looking at a different book of the Bible each week. Today we'll look at Romans and attempt a bird's eye view of what in the world Paul is doing in that letter from start to finish. And so to do that, we'll do something a little unusual today. We'll have three sections of Scripture from Romans 1, 11, and 15. Scott will read from Romans 1. I will speak. He will then read from Romans 11. I will speak again, and then he'll read from Romans 15, and then I'll finish up. So, Scott, will you start us with Romans chapter 1, please? The first scripture reading is from Romans 1, 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are the words that you gave Paul by the power of your spirit. You've used these words to change people from spiritual death to spiritual life. You've used these words to rock the very foundations of the world. Would you shake us too this morning with these words and draw us to you that we might know you better? We ask this all to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Dwayne Olson is my great uncle. And Dwayne Olson grew up in uh, North Dakota and in Minnesota in the early part of the 20th century. He became a Christian at a young age and sensed an internal call that maybe God was sending him somewhere other than Minnesota to be a pastor. As he began to grow up, he learned a lot about the country of Thailand. And so he began to sense this internal call, and people also spoke into his life and ratified that call. He sensed a call to be a a long-term missionary to Thailand. So he had a sending church that helped to fund his education. He learned Hebrew and Greek, and some farmers helped to pay for that as well. He then learned the Thai language, which is beautiful if you haven't heard that language. He then went off to Thailand in the 1960s with his family, with small children, and moved to the northern part of Thailand. You may not know that in the 1960s, the northern part of Thailand was at least 92% Buddhist. Very few Christians there. So he goes there, he settles in his family, and he begins to lead a ministry for several years. After a while, the war next door and some other things uh, caused him to have to leave after about eight years, but he really spent a lot of time there. And in the 1990s, near the end of his life, I met with him in Pennsylvania, and I I said to him, how do you do that? First of all, tell me your story, he told me, and I said, well, what do you do once you get to Thailand then? He said, well, there were a few Christians there that I knew of ahead of time that I'd been in contact with, so I talked to them. And he said, I got my hands on a Land Rover, the SUV. And he said, so then I just started to drive north. And I drove north to sort of a clearing, an area next to a wooded area where there were a lot of people. 
And he said he got out of his Land Rover, he went to the back, he pulled the hatch down, picked up a microphone and a small speaker he had there, and he picked up his Bible. And he said that he read Romans chapter 1. In Thai, of course. <laughs> and he said, he said, Andrew, I held the Bible out here on purpose so that they would see these were not just my ideas, but that maybe they came from someone else, that I had been sent to that area. He read the scriptures day after day from Genesis and from Romans 1 and began to meet people. They were wondering what he was doing there, of course, and over time people came to know and love Jesus. These words from Romans chapter 1 have lit the world on fire. They're not magical, though. There's not, it's not as if the syllables, when said in certain places, all of a sudden something happens. It's really what the Spirit does with these words. It's the Holy Spirit taking the truth behind these words and applying this truth to my heart and yours, that we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. The scripture here says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so in using that word salvation, that begs the question, what is it saving us from then? What do we need to be saved from? Other parts of Romans get very specific when, they, when it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Left to our own, without connection to the Lord Jesus, we remain in spiritual death and go to hell and spend an eternity apart from God and his people. But... That key word, but in the same verse where it says the wages of sin is death, it says this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This eternal life that we all long for to live forever is a free gift, the scriptures say. Romans goes on to say how we receive the free gift. It is through forgiveness that we receive. We confess our sins with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The scripture says you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is made right or justified. It is the free gift and that is the good news. And it's given by faith alone. The scripture also then says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, uh, for faith. Christ's righteousness is given to you as you believe in him. So as you believe in Jesus and confess your sins, it's not just forgiveness, but it's a positive standing too. You receive the record of Christ. His record becomes your record. You receive something there in the positive, and that is his righteousness. So this gospel here in Romans chapter 1 is, first of all, a declaration. It is a declaration of where you stand. If you've confessed your sins, placed your name, your your faith in the Lord Jesus, this declaration applies to you. You are righteous. You've been made right. You have a good standing with God and he loves you. But it's more than a declaration. This gospel is much more than a declaration. I uh, was born in Minnesota. And you may know that Minnesota is called the land of 10,000 lakes. There's actually over 15,000, a lot there. And if you go to a little town called Park Rapids, Minnesota, just a little bit north of there, there's a little stream. And the stream is only about 18 inches wide. I say it's about that big. You can actually go to the stream just north of Park Rapids. You can put your foot in it if you want to. It starts there. 
And if you turn around and watch the stream, it goes down to Lake Atasca, which is not very big. It then goes over to Lake Winnebagashish. From Lake Winnebagashish, it makes its way down to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and begins to get bigger. It then touches Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, I imagine. Arkansas, Louisiana, all the way down to the Gulf and gets to be huge. Now, if you're standing there, just north of Park Rapids, Minnesota, looking at that 18-inch stream, the thought you would have is that this is entirely insignificant, just a little bit of running water, right? If you didn't know what was happening downstream, you would think it's not that big of a deal, right? The cross is very much like the Mississippi River. If you were there the day that Jesus died, you would probably run away or walk away like most of the disciples from that scene of Jesus on the cross. You might keep a distance and peer over the crest of the hill and look down and see him there in the cross. And you might think this is really insignificant, even shameful. He says he can save the whole world, but he can't even save himself. What's so powerful about this man and what's going on there? It would appear in that moment to be entirely insignificant. But over time, of course, that river of blood from the cross saves billions and redeems an entire world. It looks insignificant, even shameful, to think of Christ on the cross without knowing what comes later. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of this. It looks shameful, Jesus dying on the cross. It looks pitiful, but I'm not ashamed of that because out of that then comes life, my life. And the life of so many others that I'm sent to go bring the gospel to. The gospel is so much more than a declaration that you've been made right. It's a gift. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. What's the rest he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Yes, the gospel involves some different propositions, some declarations that need to be understood. But that's not all. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus giving himself for you for me. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the famous German pastor and professor in October of 1517, is upset with how the gospel is being preached or not preached, in fact, in Germany. And so he writes out 95 statements or 95 theses in Latin. He attaches them to a door, which is sort of like the bulletin board, the church bulletin board. So I'm sure over the last several weeks, you've heard a lot about this in the news, the 500-year anniversary of that. I wonder if you've ever looked through those 95 statements to see what they're like. Well, a lot of them are deeply propositional, explaining about faith and sin and grace and confession and repentance and all of these aspects of a relationship with Jesus. But there's one. There's one that is the crowning joy. It's number 62. And everything before it, really points up to it, and everything after it points up to it, points back to it as well. It's number 62. It's actually at the front of your order of worship. He writes simply this, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. He's talking about Jesus. The true treasure of the church is its connection to this dear, loving man who gave everything to redeem the whole world. Scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's an invitation to a person. 
Jesus also says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is not some, some sort of list of objective propositions. Truth is a person. It's most fundamentally a person. Jesus, he defines what truth is. And he is truth. He even says it then, I am truth. So Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. There's a special rest that comes to those who know and love Jesus. You may at times look at your own life and find that you are your own greatest accuser. That the memory of certain sins or failings that you've done this past week or 25 years ago haunt you. That that's really, you may at times think that that's really the measure of who you are and that God holds that against you. He does not. When the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. For all who are Christians are in Christ. And then here's the key question here of the morning. Does the Father love the Son? Does God the Father love God the Son? With a pure, wonderful, 100%, 100% love. God the Father adores God the Son. And you are in Christ and therefore he adores you. Something you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five weeks ago. No, that is not what God thinks about or holds against you. You may hold that against you in your mind, but no, that is not the case. Does the father love the son? Of course he does. So there's real freedom in that. We don't have to wake up every morning and think, I've got to check these boxes. If I check these boxes, I'll feel good about myself. And then maybe God will answer my prayers and be okay with me today. No, we wake up every morning already been having been made right with him. We are no longer struggling to be free, but instead are free to struggle honestly on a foundation of acceptance and peace with God. So this scripture here is so foundational to all of Romans, to really all of the Bible, Romans chapter one, but it's not just a list of theological propositions about salvation. It's much more than that. You notice Paul in these verses talks about salvation coming to the Jew and to the Gentile, which is a way of saying to everybody. He's writing to the Roman church here, which is primarily Jewish at that time. And some Gentiles are starting to come in. He's reminding them, hey, this gospel is not just for, a, for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. And in fact, he mentions earlier in the chapter, he's going after all nations. He's going after the highly cultured Greeks. He's going after the barbarians, he says. This gospel's is to go out to all nations. There's a missionary thrust here that begins in Romans 1 and never ends to the end of Romans. God saves, and he saves us. So Scott will read the the second part here, Romans chapter 11. Go ahead. The second reading is from Romans 11, 33 through chapter 12, verse 1. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship the word of the Lord. So God saves us. He saves all who believe in Jesus Christ. How then do we respond? What's a proper response 
to go from spiritual death to the free gift of eternal life. In our house, we sing a lot. We sing every day. I sing a lot about all sorts of things. And oftentimes, maybe four or five days a week, I'll be singing about something and my young daughters will interrupt me and say, Daddy, Daddy, you need to stop singing. And it's not, I think, it's not because it's so uh, atonal or off. I'm sure it is at times. But actually, when my daughters ask me to stop singing, they say something like this. It's because I want to sing. They want the floor, you see, to sing on and on and on. So we sing every day. We sing on the way to school. We sing on the way home. And we sing about really wonderful things in life. We sing about chocolate and the glories of it. Okay? We sing about American Girl dolls. This past week, we we made up a song about laughter. So we sang that song too, right? When you're happy about something, you can't help but sing about it, to tell someone about it, right? So we sing about chocolate and we sing about other things like that. What Paul does here is just sing. That's what he does. At the end of Romans 11, he's writing a song. Now, it doesn't rhyme for us. It's in the English now, but that's exactly what he's doing. He can't help but get it out. And so he says, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And then you see a little bit of rhythm here at the end, here, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so he sings. So my question to you is then, do you sing? Do you sing about the glory of God? Not that you need to sing out loud about that glory every single day of your life, but we'll just start within here. Do you sing Sunday mornings? If you don't sing, why? May I ask you why? It can't be because you're afraid of the sound of your voice, right? I mean, you could actually sing quite low, but still sing. If you don't sing, is there something deeper there? I think God is calling all of us to sing, regardless of how we feel. When we gather on Sunday mornings, God has called us to sing. And I want to encourage you, no matter how awful the previous week has been, to and sometimes even just force yourself to mouth those words about God's salvation, about his love, about his loveliness, and about his beauty. Because there's real benefit in that. How often is it that, you, that what goes on in your body so affects your spirit and what you feel most deeply? So when you're totally tired and exhausted, you're not very patient, right? You're irritable, quick to snap because you're so tired and exhausted. Your spirit then follows that with some impatience. In the opposite way, if you've had a great week, you've slept well, you've ate well, you're much, you're much better able to engage with people, a little bit more patient. Your spirit follows what's been happening with the body. It's the same way when we worship together, when you voice these words, when you sing these words, even if your heart is not very much into it, the spirit gets to work. Has it happened to you where you've come to worship and the first song is sung and you think to yourself, I'm really not into this. I really wish I wasn't here right now. But then by the fourth song or the fifth song, the heart is a little bit warmer. The dam is broke a little bit. And you begin to think, man, this is worth fighting for. This is real. This is not just some idea. 
And you become equipped through that process. I mentioned the Mississippi River earlier and its incredible power. It seems so insignificant at the beginning, but at the end, it's incredibly powerful with these strong currents, such that these currents of the river continue to reshape boundaries between Mississippi and Louisiana, and arguments ensue between public officials, between what is Mississippi and what is Louisiana, because the river's still doing its work. It's still carving and shaping that land in that way. And the beauty of the cross is just that way. It looks so insignificant at first. You follow Jesus, you mouth these words, you follow him, and the Spirit gets to work and begins to shape your heart and warm it for the week ahead simply by voicing out loud what you know is true, though you may not feel it at the time. The power there may not be easily seen, but it is there. And the Spirit of God loves to awaken your slumbering heart and mine on Sunday morning as we gather, as we sing. So in worship, we present our hearts, our entire bodies to God. And we say, Lord, here I am. Take me. Do something with me. Now, if I were to ask you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and answer this question, now what, I wonder what your answer would be. Here's the question. What does God want from me? What does God want from me? I wonder how you would answer that. If your heart runs most immediately to doing something or giving something up, you may be missing out on a lot of joy in life. When I ask you, what does God want from you? If the first thing you think of is money, he wants me to read the Bible, he wants me to make sure that I witness, he wants me to, you could go on and on, right? You could do all those things but really hate God. The best answer to what does God really want from me is simply these two letters, M-E. He just wants me. With all the warts, with all my failings, with all my sins, with all my weaknesses, he wants me. I can't repay him through more Bible reading, through giving him money when he owns all the money anyway, right? And actually, that's part of what Paul sings about here in Romans chapter 11. There in verse 35, he says, who has, a, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's silly to think about. We can't repay God or earn this salvation in any way. No, that is not it. What does God want from me and from you? He wants us. We cannot repay the blood of Jesus. We can't add anything to the blood of Jesus. And that's why we call it grace. It's beautiful in that way. So God saves us. God continues in his kindness to shape us. And he shapes us for something. So Scott, will you read about what God has shaped us for? Our final reading is from Romans chapter 15, verses 19b through 24. So from Jerusalem all the way around Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, Those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott. So Paul is ending here his letter in chapter 15, which is a chapter we often overlook 
actually, but we really shouldn't. He's been busy, of course. He's been preaching in Jerusalem. And then out of Jerusalem, he's moved into modern-day Turkey and into Greece and into Illyricum, which is actually north of Greece, he mentions. And he's writing this letter to Rome because he wants to go further. He wants to get to Rome to be encouraged, to rest rest a bit, lick his chops, so to speak, get some strength from people, and get his supplies so he can move on to the next place. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I want to be helped on my journey there by you. What's he asking? He's saying to Rome, I need you to be my sending church. I need to come stay with you and be with you and, and live with you for a while. And I need you to send me on because I'm not done yet. I've gone over the eastern end of this Mediterranean. I want to get all the way to Spain. I need you to send me. I need you to use your resources to send me. Romans 1 begins with Paul talking about here. He wants to bring the gospel to all nations, to barbarians, to Greeks, to everyone. Romans 15 then ends this Bible. He's saying, I want to keep going. This time I want to go to Spain. And I need you to be my sending church. Now, there's a temptation to look at these verses and think, well, that's sort of the, the pleasantries at the end. The real meat of Romans is in the middle. This is him just talking about going from city to city. But I think there's, we'll, we'll be missing something if we look at the Scripture this way. It's something much deeper. When Paul writes about his life and his story, he is getting to the very heart of who God is and to the very heart of who you and I are called to be. You and I are called to be sent. We're sent for a mission. It's not just that God saves us, that he continues to shape us, but that you and I have been sent as well. Now for Paul, he's a unique circumstance. He's the apostle, uh, the apostle of apostles. He's been sent to do a special work along the Mediterranean, but just as much as he's been sent, you've been sent. And I've been sent as well. And this gets to the very heart of who God is. God is a sending God. You'll sometimes hear people talk about missional theology or God is, God is missional. It's just a fancy word for saying God is a sending God. He sends people. God the Father sent the Son to the earth. When the Son was on the earth, Jesus would say to people, just wait, because the Father and I are going to send the Spirit. That language appears then as well. So then Jesus goes back to be with God the Father. God the Father and the Son send down the Spirit. Then they continue to raise up people to be sent around the world. And the church begins to grow. And we continue to send missionaries still today. I mentioned my uncle Dwayne Olson sent far away, a half a world away. You may be a long-term missionary. And that's wonderful. You've been sent to that place, maybe even far away. God may be calling you to take a short-term trip to get a sense of the bigness of God's world, to encourage Christians in another place of the world as in-town schedules more and more of those short-term missionary trips. But you're called and you're sent on such a deeper level than that. I don't fly much, but I did fly recently to Tampa. And on the way back, I was seated next to a guy who uh, had headphones in and I thought he was going to not say anything. And so then I thought, I'm just going to read because I've been talking this entire trip and now I'll sit, sit still. He took out his headphones and began to talk about the weather and other things. And I realized he's a talker. And 
we're going to talk now for an hour and a half. And uh, so I, you know, put away my things and, uh, and he began to share about his life. And I, and I said to him, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a professor. And he began to go through all these different things that he teaches and the several campuses that he teaches on. And I, I found it pretty interesting, really. And then came that moment in the, in the conversation that I just know is coming and that I don't really look forward to. And that is when uh, he turned to me and said, so what do you do? Now, as a pastor, when I'm meeting people for the first time, people are sharing what they do. I know that moment is coming and I wince a little bit. And someone says, so what do you do? And I, I said to him, I'm an assistant pastor at a church in Atlanta. He just looked down at the ground for 15 seconds. And I'm accustomed to people saying something like, well, I'll watch my language around you, you know, or something like that. And I say, (laughs) you know, and I say, you really don't have to. Uh, And, and the conversation changes. So you see why I kind of don't look forward to that moment. Well, for about 15 seconds, he said nothing. And then he looked at me and he said, well, I give money to my church. So my church can send people around the world. And I said, oh, and he said, no, that's really, that's how I make a difference. Those are the words he used. That's how I make a difference. I earn money as a professor. I give it to the local church so they can send missionaries around the world. Now, what would you say to him in that moment? I wasn't entirely sure, but I, I looked at him and I said, well, you're just as much of a missionary as somebody you're giving money to. And he didn't say anything. And I said, scripture says you're an ambassador for Christ. Scripture presents the picture that churches are outposts from heaven, full of missionaries. Some go far away, some go down the street every week. But that the church is full of missionaries, full of people who've been sent out. It's not just the person who goes to Thailand. You've been sent out. What you do is deeply spiritual and important. He didn't say anything. He'd never heard this notion before. And he really didn't say anything else to me, actually. Uh, (laughs) He got more than he bargained for, I think, when he started that conversation. But he closed the conversation, you know, kindly. But he just, I don't think he really agreed with that. Well, maybe the Spirit will take that little seed in his life and, and convince him of that in some way. But out of that, I would say this. We err when we think that that is our contribution to growing God's church. Giving money. To thinking that is our only contribution. That is a key contribution and people need that. Paul needs to be sent with materials, sent with food and things like that. But there's so much more. God saves us, he shapes us, and he sends us. I hope you feel down to the deepest part of you that you've been sent. That you've been sent by a king and that you are an ambassador to where you are. Most fundamentally that you've been sent here to this planet to live your life to God's glory. Whether you're healthy, whether you're not healthy, whether you have money, whether you don't have money. You've been sent here to have a relationship with God and that brings glory to him. Your worth is not chiefly in what you accomplish. It's in your connection to this son. But you've been sent in other ways too, right? You've been sent into a family and maybe an extended family too that you pray for. Is there someone in your family who you are concerned maybe doesn't know God and you pray for that person? And the years pass, and the years pass, and you keep praying, don't stop. I'm praying that too. Keep praying. 
And as you pray, keep in mind that it may not be the words you use to bring that family member to Christ. It might be that family member can't listen to you anymore. But don't stop because you've been sent. You've been sent into a neighborhood. You've been sent into an apartment complex or into a house with people around you who need God. You've been sent into a workplace, maybe a workplace outside the home too, where people you get to know you can pray for too. Wherever you go, where you play, where you coach, wherever you go, you've been sent to that place to love people, to pray. You are an ambassador, a missionary. Now, your heart might retort to me quickly and say, well, on some level, Andrew, I believe that, but right now I'm struggling to get out of bed in the morning and it's hard for me to take the next step. I understand that and I've been there before. Life ebbs and flows. Our passion for life and our passion for God will ebb and flow, but thankfully his passion for us never ebbs and flows, right? And because our passion for God and seeing worshipers in every nation ebbs and flows, that's why we need to get together and sing and be together and take the supper and baptism and more. We have this gospel treasure in us, the scripture says, to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. We often think that it's the great things we do for the kingdom that really matter. When we go out and we tell somebody about Jesus or we give a lot of money, we do great things we can think back on. The Bible really doesn't present that picture of life, though. Yes, God uses the money you give. He uses the words that you say. But the Bible emphasizes over and over that God loves to work through your weaknesses, that he delights to work through your shortcomings, your failings, and your weaknesses. To show that, the scripture says, to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. So when you go through profound suffering that grips you to the very heart of who you are, you still have faith. People look at you. They see that and they think to themselves, how is it possible that he is still a Christian with all that God has allowed in his life. How is it possible that she still is a Christian? What is it there? What is that deep-seated joy there that still remains? And then God begins to work in other people's lives around us. It's through your weakness. What if that is the chief way that God uses you? In your family, in your neighborhood, here at church, through your weaknesses. Maybe that is his plan all along. I think it is. So God saves us, God shapes us, and God sends us to. I mentioned my great uncle, Dwayne, going to Thailand. He told me that one day he was walking down a dirt road and he took a left and he looked to his left and down this single lane dirt road, he saw this young guy in his 20s. His name is George. His name was different, actually, but I can't pronounce his name. Um, (laughs) but we'll call him George. So my uncle Dwayne said he, he could see down this, this road, George, and that he knew George and that George had become a Christian out of Buddhism. In fact, George had relayed to my uncle Dwayne that he, George, was laying awake most nights crying because as he studied the tenets of Buddhism, he realized he was constantly being told, strive more, strive more, do more. You've never done enough. And so he would cry because he lacked peace. He knew there was something else out there. When my 
Uncle Dwayne thankfully read this Bible, led him to know and love Jesus, and George began to know about a new sort of peace, really peace for the first time, the rest that could be found in a person and what that person's done for him and his connection to Jesus. So my great uncle then knows this about George, sees him down the street, and George is standing there by himself in the middle of the street in front of his own house. My Uncle Dwayne said that the front door of the house flung open and made a loud cracking noise. And out into the street went George's belongings. The blanket off his bed, all of his books, and then finally one suitcase. He'd come home with this exciting good news about Jesus. But at the time, his family wanted nothing to do with it and no longer wanted anything to do with him. He then began to pray for his family, and my uncle began to pray for his family. And I don't know what came out of that, but as my uncle spoke with George, George said this, that he had no regrets, that he had no regrets at all, that he could then sleep at night knowing that he was at peace with God because of what Jesus had done for him. Now, for my uncle Dwayne to get to Thailand, a lot of things had to happen. There had to be sending churches. There were farmers who just gave money straight out of their pocket to him. The church worked together and ultimately George's life has changed now and is now a brother in Christ and perhaps even his parents came to know him as well. This is how God works. He sends people down the street and around the world. He is a sending God at the very foundation of who God is. He sends himself to the earth. He sends people to build up churches. He sends in town to this place to be a sending church. And then while he does that, he sends you and I out each week to testify to the love of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we struggle sometimes to believe that we are sent as much as someone like Paul or my uncle Dwayne, but your scripture says we are just as sent as they are. That, Holy Spirit, you are just as powerful as you work in our lives. We thank you for that. Lord, you've saved us, you've shaped us, and now you've sent us. Lord, send us out this week. Yes, in our strengths, but also in our weaknesses. To testify that you are good. And that the free gift, the free offer of eternal life still stands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.